Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Growing up as a kid in the 1960s in Kansas City, Steve Fiziak always had a dream of being the voice of the baseball team right here in his hometown. Well, in February of 2012, he finally got that call. He got the call to come home and start broadcasting for the Kansas City Royals. And it wasn't just broadcasting for the Royals, it was broadcasting for the Royals at the right exact time. Right before the Royals took off and won back-to-back American League championships and a World Series, Steve Fiziak was here, and he was along for the ride. And oh, what a ride it was. It's led to many things, including writing a brand new book called The Walls of Luka. Here's my conversation with one of the broadcasters for the Royals, Steve Fiziak. You know, everybody talks about my dream job, my dream job, my dream job. And here you are at the tail end of your career living your dream job and, and, and getting that opportunity to do the Kansas City Royals. What was that day like when you got that call from Kevin Ulick or Swanee or whoever it was and, like, you want to be the uh, the announcer for the Royals now? It was amazing. And I always remember the conversation I had with Mike Swanson, who's from Kansas City and had worked for different organizations, Arizona, San Diego, Colorado. And I said, what was it like for you coming home? And he said, it's better than I thought it would be. And he was very excited. And it has been better than I thought it would be because I was coming home not only to broadcast the team I loved growing up, but I was going to be closer to my sister, to my mom who's getting older, and um, my wife fell in love with the town as well she's always loved Kansas City so it has been better than I thought it would be yeah I mean I think it's kind of unique because we all lie and say oh this is my dream job or that's my dream job and I'm doing what I love I'm doing my dream job but you can realistically sit there and say I'm doing my dream job I mean you grow up as a kid watching baseball whether it be the A's I would imagine when you were probably very young and then the first incarnation of the Royals and then here you are sitting in the booth do you have the do you have a moment every day where you go wow I can't believe I'm sitting here doing this I'll look down and see a young young boy in the stands and I'll go, that was me. That was me at Old Municipal Stadium in downtown Kansas City because I used to go to the A's games and used to go to the Royals games. And they were gone for one year, only the 1968 season. But for a young baseball fan, it just killed me when the A's left for Oakland. And when I heard that the Kansas City Royals were coming to town in 1969, I can show you a scrap- scrapbook. Maybe I should have brought it, but I cut out all of the little profiles they were doing on the new Royals in the expansion draft. And I followed that team religiously. I told Denny Matthews that you were the reason I got C-minuses in junior high school because I listened to every single broadcast of that 1969 season, had the transistor radio with the wire going down my shirt and you know, yeah. at, at school. And I, I struggled, obviously, academically that year, but I knew every single Royal from Joe Keogh to Lupinella. Did you did you uh, think at that time when you're listening to Denny that that's what you were going to do? Like you were going to actually be behind the mic someday calling these games? Maybe not Royals games, but just baseball in general? No, because as a young person, you always think you're going to be the athlete. Oh, You're okay. going to be the basket. You're going to be Nate Tiny Archibald for the Kansas City Omaha Kings, or you're going to be Otis Taylor for the Kansas City Chiefs, or you're going to be the next Lupinella or 
later George Brett for the Kansas City Royals. Well, I found out very early that I was a mediocre athlete. And then when I got to Kansas State, I actually struggled my first semester, was on academic probation, and then took a year off and worked. And something happened while I was back in Kansas City working as a busboy at the top of the Crown Restaurant. And I said, you're not a good athlete, but you love sports, you love talking about it. Why don't you take a class? So I went back to Kansas State, took a class, and I do remember the first broadcast I ever did was of Lucky High School and Wakefield, you know, a, a single-A team. And I remember leaving the broadcast booth and my hands were shaking. And they were shaking not because it was a great game. They were shaking because I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I've been doing it ever since. It's amazing when you have that epiphany. Mine, I think, was eight years old when I was watching the Giants and listening to John Madden and Pat Summerall calling him. <laughs> I'm clearly never going to be able to play, so I might as well get in the booth and go, hey, hey, boom, or whatever John Madden was doing. Like, I, 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 you, you have those moments that you can remember when you decided this is it. This is what I want to do for a living. And I don't know if everybody has those moments, but I think if, if, you, if you've been thinking about something maybe your whole life, you probably do remember that moment that you had when you decided this is what I was going to do. Absolutely, and I was very fortunate to have a great professor at Kansas State, Bob Fiddler, who encouraged me. Now, to my credit, I volunteered for everything. Sure. And I was the sports director at KSDBFM at Kansas State University, and I was also shooting film of the football and basketball games. And every time an opportunity came up, I raised my hand. Even when it was to be a political reporter for the uh, presidential campaign in 1974? Well, anyway, um, I just said the more experience I can get to be in front of camera, do it. Doesn't matter if you're doing the weather, the sports, the news, just get the experience. And Bob Fiddler encouraged me and gave me every single opportunity at Kansas State. And that allowed me to get my first job in Hastings with help from the great Fred White. Yeah, and, and somebody had said to me, that make sure you ask him about Fred White and get the, get the backstory about Fred White and how he truly helped you because Fred became obviously a legend in this town as well with doing the Royals and the old Big 8 and the Big 12 and everything in between. You guys had that relationship that actually helped you probably get better jobs after that first one. He was like a father figure, and he never took credit for it. But I do remember him telling me, when he did the varsity games for Kansas State University football and basketball, I did the junior varsity games. And on his drive-in, he would listen and go, hey, this, this kid at KSDB FM's not too bad. Yeah. And so we became friends through that experience. And then apparently he found out my enthusiasm, my passion, my work ethic through Bob Fiddler. And then I, I believe he, he, he's never told me, or he had never told me, whether he made the phone call to KHAS in Hastings, Nebraska, because that's where... Fred White started, my hero, and I wanted to start there as well. And wouldn't you know it, I got that job, and two years later I got the job at WWW because of Fred White. He had called me and said, hey, I've given them your tape, they're interested, um, and there were serendipitous moments how I got that job in Topeka, Kansas as well. Yeah, but when you're doing, when you're sitting there in Topeka, Kansas doing, you know, K-State games, did you ever think K-State would get to the level that it's at right now with football being turned around and basketball moving in the right direction and all that? I mean, at, at that point in time, obviously basketball was pretty good, but football was nothing to speak of. I mean, K-State was really nothing to speak of until Bill Snyder arrived on the scene there. I think he is one of the greatest coaches of all time to do what he's done at Kansas State because this is a school that's very difficult to recruit high-level inner-city talent. You're in the middle of nowhere in mm -hmm. Manhattan, Kansas. I loved it. I loved the experience there. But to recruit top talent, it's impossible. He's doing it with no star and one-star athletes because he gets young people 
who buy into the team philosophy. And that's the only way Kansas State can win it. They can't get the stars. They never will. And that's why I enjoy watching his teams play. And when I've had a chance to talk with him, we've had wonderful conversations, but not always about football. A lot of times it was about collecting baseball cards. Did you know Bill Snyder was a huge baseball collector in St. Joe, Missouri? Uh. Oh, he used to trade his ball cards, and he would also save his milk money uh, when he was growing up in uh, St. Joe, Missouri, and he also saved his money from uh, delivering newspapers and would go down to the five-and-dime store and, and buy baseball cards. I did a couple of college football games at Kansas State, and we had more discussions about baseball card collection than we did about the football game. He's a delightful guy, but a, also a guy with great conviction, great self-discipline, and demands that from his coaches and his team, and that's why they've been so successful. What's the best baseball card that he has? I don't know. What about for you? What's your favorite one? I have many, you know, obviously the George Brett cards I had back in the 70s, but I have to share something with you that was very embarrassing. And uh, I've collected ball cards from from the 1950s uh-huh. all the way through the 1960s, but I was struggling so badly academically, my dad grabbed the bag of cards that I'd read through every single day, and he either hid them or threw, threw them out. I must have had $50,000 worth of cards, and we're talking like Ted Williams, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, all of the greats from that era were thrown out because Knucklehead here wouldn't discipline himself to study mathematics and and uh, English, etc. And I was struggling in school, but boy, I knew my sports. Why Why do parents do that? Because my mother always said to me, she goes, I'm not going to be that mother who throws out the baseball cards. In fact, I'm going to be the mother that goes above and beyond. We had Mickey Mantle cards. I had the almost the entire 1960 New York Yankees team as a kid growing up that I was able to collect and put together. And, you know, you remember those kinds of cards. I, I know they're at my mother's house now somewhere. She won't tell me where they are. I'll probably get them in the will, you know, when it's all said and done. But she was always going to be that mother that wasn't going to throw out those baseball cards because of those horror stories like you that you had you know you know um i didn't give my folks that many opportunities to believe in me but my mom did i was not a good student until i got to kansas state university Mm -hmm. that's where i was able to get on the dean's list because i found my passion but that said i asked my mom one time later in life i said why did you believe in me when no one else would and she said because you like to read and because you like to read you like to learn and I used to read all the times, and it wasn't just baseball books because I read every media guide, but it was sometimes the classics. I, I think the first adult book that I read was Northwest Passage by Kenneth Roberts, and I was in the fifth, sixth grade when I read it. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was a fascinating story, and I think to, to this day that's why I enjoy broadcasting baseball, football, and basketball because it is part of the storytelling of life. Why were you such a bad student? Um, I was incredibly interested in the things of passionate about the things that interested me. Sports interested me. The Kansas City Chiefs interested me. Mm-hmm. They were a dynamic team at the time with Len Dawson and Mike Garrett and Otis Taylor and Frank Pitts and Jim Lynch and Willie Lanier and Buck Buchanan. And I can name every. And the same thing is true with the Kansas City Royals with that team. And I could see the development, the growth. And obviously when the Brett McRae eras came in, you knew this was this team was going to be special. And as a young person, you want to be part of that enthusiasm. So I would throw myself into those kinds of things and study them. Unfortunately, I was behind in arithmetic and English and other 
<laughs> I, I think today, though, if, if you were that type of kid, they would find something for you to do in school to kind of accentuate those talents. I mean, I, I think now I look at what my kids are doing in, in just first and second grade, and there's a lot of obviously the basic stuffs that you have to focus on. But I think education has changed a lot in America over the last 30 years where you can steer people towards that kind of stuff because there is such a career now to be had in sports. I don't believe it's the school. I believe it's the teacher. The teacher can have a tremendous influence on you. In sixth grade, I remember Mr. Markman, Mm -hmm. who uh, was an incredible teacher, I thought, and he's the one who encouraged me to read. He goes, my gosh, we've got a sixth grader who's reading Kenneth Roberts, Arendelle, Rabble in Arms, uh, Northwest Passage, Lydia Bailey. And so he really encouraged me, inspired me, and he knew that I had a love of history. So he, And to this day, I remember Mr. Markman. And then, of course, when I got to uh, Shawnee Mission North, there was a teacher named Carolyn Jeter. She was an English teacher, mm-hmm. and she was two-time uh, teacher of the year in the state of Kansas. And she would not let me off the hook. And she said, Steve, you're a good writer, but you don't know how to write. And so she would give me theme follow-ups. Okay, you wrote this, do it again. And this is why it's not correct. And I would have to do it over and over and over. And I finally got a C-plus in the class. But to this day, our family has this incredible friendship with Carolyn Jeter. My mom went to school and said, "All all five kids must have Carolyn Jeter. She fought to have Carolyn Jeter. And then, of course, I told you about Bob Fiddler at Kansas State. Sure. So I don't think it's the school. It's the teacher. And I think we have to do a greater job in America, in our states, to encourage teaching. I, I think that's the, the future of our, our, our children is in public education, and we need to really fight for that. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, like, which teacher had the impact on you, and I'm going through my mind, and I remember all of my teachers' names, but I don't remember one having, like, that true boom impact on me. And and I think it, it came in high school. It was from a teacher I hated in algebra, and they missed <laughs> Clark. I mean, she was, like, in her 20s, and I, I couldn't do math, you know? And, and I'm like, I, I'm I don't know same. what one plus one is. I don't know what a square I don't But I'll care. bet you could do a batting average in an ERA. I could, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I could figure all of that out, right? And I remember her always telling telling me i'm not going to spoon feed you i'm not going to spoon feed you and i would resent that like what yes. do you mean you're not going to sp- just tell me how to do the problem lady you know and she wouldn't do it she, i'm not going to spoon feed you figure it out figure it out and here i am at 41 remembering back to those days of you know algebra one as a freshman in high school because she wasn't going to spoon feed me and i now use that with my kids come on figure it out you can figure it out and you i think appreciate so much figuring it out on yourself instead of just going in there and having somebody do it for you you're right, and I do believe I was part of the era that wanted to help my children, yeah. and that's not good. Um, I love my kids. Both of them are college graduates, but there were times when I would... I remember my daughter, 13 years old, um, and I travel a lot, obviously, so I love my family. I want to be with them as often as possible, particularly when I come home, and I remember knocking on her door and saying, Hey, Ryan, you want to do homework? And she always said, Yeah, let's do homework together. Well, at the age of 13, when girls or any teenager begins to separate i knocked on the door and said hey ryan you want to do homework and she goes you always want to do my homework and she slammed the door in my face and going wait a second that wasn't right and i knocked on the door again i said ryan i don't want to do your homework i just want to hang out with you so if you could in the future just let your dad down a little easy just say no dad i want to do my homework by myself so sure enough uh, i go off on a road trip when we were in southern california and i come back and I'm all excited. I forgot the, of, of that conversation. And I run upstairs and I knock on the door and I go, hey, honey, you want to do homework? And she goes, no, Dad, but thanks for asking. And then closes the door right in my face. And I thought, <laughs> hey, she handled it better. But you're right. I, I think a lot of parents 
we have to work so much, and I was working several jobs, football, basketball, and baseball, yeah. that when you're home, you want to spend time with them. And sometimes it is picking up their arithmetic book and helping them with their homework. You know, you, you I think, have a unique experience from a parenting standpoint, and, and if, if you want us to edit this out, we can edit this out, but you adopted your children. I mean, so to, to have that type of relationship with your kids that, you know, that you went out and adopted, I, I think is spectacular in and of itself. How did you form that bond with the kids when you adopted them and not have them on your own? It was very easy. Um, my wife... Um, had seven miscarriages, lost eight babies, oh and, the, and the eighth was incredibly devastating. But when we adopted Ryan, it was such, uh, for lack of a better explanation, such a spiritual, organic, perfect, natural experience that I fell in love immediately. This was my child. And it's not like you get nine months to get ready for it. Uh, in our case, we were in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we wrote a, an outline out on why we think we would be good parents. And then the lawyer gives it to prospective clients, young ladies, and they choose you. Well, my wife's uh, resume on Stephen Stacy Physioc was so incredibly inspiring that, Bob, you and your wife would give us your children because it was unbelievable. We got a uh, call back in within a month. Are you still interested in more kids? Because I got a seven and eight year old. I mean, right about now. <laughs> but the, the the great thing is, and how it all worked out was, we had a girl choose us, uh-huh. and she was thirteen years old. Oh, yes. Wow. Well, here's the funny thing, and he calls me one week before this girl's to deliver. We're waiting for our baby, and he said, Steve, um, I want to tell you about a situation. There's a young girl who just delivered. She was a very good student at uh, Fort Thomas High School, and uh, she got pregnant, and she's decided to give her baby up for adoption. Well, the adoption fell through. She was supposed to uh, give the baby, and I was doing the the, uh, legal work in North Carolina. The two states, Kentucky and North Carolina, don't reciprocate, so the adoption fell through. I wanted to know if you and Stacy would like this child. And we had a girl that was waiting for us, and we just thought it was one of those God moments. So we said yes. And that was Ryan. And interestingly, the girl whose baby we were waiting for, she decided to keep it. Oh, wow. So we wouldn't have gotten that child anyway. So that's Ryan, who is now 31 years old, married, has given us three incredible grandchildren. And I loved Ryan from the moment I saw her. And when that took place, my wife still wanted to have children, so got pregnant miscarried pregnant miscarried and the last one was devastating and i remember um calling our adoption lawyer and saying my wife needs a baby and she needs a i don't care if it's a puppy and the miracle in that was he didn't know it but he called me on december 28th to say a girl has selected you for their child Mm -hmm. december 28th is my birthday oh wow that's still the greatest birthday present i've ever received that that would would be Kevin. And yep. Kevin was born March 1st, um, 1989. He's now 29 years old, getting his master's degree at San Francisco State. So we have been blessed with two incredible children. And I think if, you're, if your heart is open, you'll get the child, the soul, that's supposed to come to you anyway. 
I think that's that's an awesome story, and and you, you got to think as a parent, it's hard enough to raise your own, trying to raise what is truly somebody else's, but you're bringing them in on your own. I mean, it, it has to be very difficult on a husband and a wife, don't you think? Um, you know what? Blood is overrated. Yeah. Um, I chose Stacy, greatest friend I've ever had. Mm-hmm. She's not blood related to me. Right. And yet we have. As you you know, Stacy, we have this incredible love affair for 30, 34 years. It's really quite sickening, years. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> you know what? I think it's more of an awareness. Yeah. Um, the easiest thing I've ever done is being married to Stacy. The hardest thing I've ever done is raising children. But my wife is, you've met her, optimistic, positive. Um, she's passionate, passionate about health, about yoga, about goodness. Um, passionate about her spirit, her faith, and she's also passionate about me. And when you find someone like that, I, mean, I ain't giving her up. Right. And I ain't doing anything stupid. <laughs> yeah, you got yourself a good. Like it's, I it's like the it. perfect match. It really is. It's like it's well, bizarre. I, I it's like you're it's like your sister almost. You no, know, it's I like, it's, like I think it's an awareness, just yeah. being awake. I mean, you and Jen have a, a fantastic relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's just being aware. I also think it's going through trials and tribulations, going through uh, trying to have biological children and not having success with that, and then finding those two souls that were supposed to come to you anyway. And life is about ups and downs. We had some challenges that I've shared with you a little bit. I don't like to go into them that dramatically without the permission of our son, Mm -hmm. but he gave us a hard time. He had difficulty with adoption. He is now the prodigal son who once was lost but now is found, and just an incredible young man, and I'm so proud of him um, for going into the profession that he's going into. He wants to go into water conservation and help save the planet. And I'm inspired by that, and I'm also inspired by his strength to get through what he went through. You, you mentioned the ups and downs with your son, and you, you don't have to get into detail, but, but how, how did you handle all that? How do, you, how do you handle that as a parent when your son is going through something or your daughter is going through something so difficult and you're watching this happen and you want to be a dad and you want to fix it, you want to change it? How do you do that? Um, unconditional love. I mean, that's the thing that my teacher, Jesus, spoke about often about unconditional love that regardless of what they're doing that doesn't mean you have to invite them in your life um there were times where we had to kick him out of our house that didn't mean we didn't love him but there were rules there were regulations that he had to live by to live with us and once he adhered to those rules then he could come back and it's much like the prodigal son story who once was lost but now is found but i think he had to go to the depths and when um, pain and suffering became too difficult and when you when he became sick and tired of being sick and tired that's when he found himself and i've always felt that there was this incredible spirit in him and spiritual growth and awakening in him that we're, we're now realizing and he's now realizing how, how do you get to that point to, to, to say you're no longer welcome here to your kid how does that how do you how do you do that as a parent um that was extremely difficult but we had to do it. We had to uh, stay firm and fast, my wife and I. Um, we knew the, the truth about him. Mm-hmm. We knew who he was. We had seen him for 15 years be this incredible young man, a leader, a straight-A student, captain of all of the sports teams, compassionate. Uh, and then he went to the dark side for a while. And we, we told him we loved him. 
always, and that when he got back to that that uh, that awareness of himself, then he would be welcomed back in our home. And um, he has Crohn's disease, mm -hmm. and the Crohn's disease went from uh, Crohn's to depression to uh, uh, going into a dark path. But I do remember him, the two of us driving. I drove with him to California to get him back into college. And he told me, Dad, I'm glad I have Crohn's disease. And I go, why would you say that? It's a horrible disease. It's been debilitating to you. And he goes, because if I didn't have it, I might still be doing the things I used to be doing. But the Crohn's disease told me, you can't do that. And uh, it's, it's been an incredible journey with him. Do you remember the moment when he said, I'm ready to come home? Oh, there have been many of those. Oh, really? Yes, there have been many wow. of those. You know, it's been, it's, it's never that easy. It's much like life. Life is up and downs, and that's why I don't, I'm not a person who believes that God gives you problems. I believe life is life, but in each challenge, in each, there's a lesson to help you get closer to God, whatever that God might be. For some, it might be Buddha. For, for others, it might be the Jewish faith. Uh, for me, it's my Christian faith. Um, it, it, but there are many paths, and I think our son traveled many paths to get back to where he is today, but he is a good young man. We'll get back to our conversation with Steve Fiziak in a moment, but I want to tell you about Red Door Grill and their new brunch. It's now available at all three Red Door Grill locations in Overland Park, in Leewood, and in the heart of Brookside every weekend on Saturday and Sunday. It's the place to brunch, but not just the place to brunch. It's the place to brunch harder. you got to try their chicken and waffles. My kiddos love them. It's a thick Belgian waffle, buttermilk chicken tenders covered in sausage gravy, and then drizzled with that maple syrup, and man, it is so good. And now I have your attention. Check out their Kentucky Hot Brown, a slow-roasted turkey, tomatoes, bacon, and bread, all covered in cheese sauce, and then boom, baked to perfection. It's time you get into one of the Red Door Grill locations in Leewood, Overland Park, or Brookside, and not only experience what they have to offer for brunch, but experience what they have to offer all week long. Mondays is $5 burgers. Thursday, of course, is jalapeno dip fried chicken day. And then Saturdays and Sundays is all about the brunch and prime rib. Whiskey-soaked and wood-fire kiss prime rib. Join us at one of the three Red Door Grill locations, Leewood, Brookside, and Overland Park, or order online at reddoorgrill.com. All right, let's talk about your career a little bit more. I think the most fascinating thing about your career, and you may totally disagree with me, you work with Jerry Springer. I mean, like, like you're on TV doing sports, and here's Jerry Springer, the old mayor of Cincinnati, doing whatever it is he was doing on the news that night. Did you ever think you'd get to the point where people are chanting, Jerry, Jerry, and this guy became a national phenomenon dealing with the dregs of society on television? He's one of the smartest and funniest people I have ever met. Now, did he choose uh, a path that I don't necessarily agree, to, agree with? Yeah. I mean, I, I think his uh, show is a little degrading. Sure. But that's the, ch the path he chose. And was there fame and fortune in it? Yes, there was. And um, I, I still respect him. I think he's an honorable man. And, and I'm talking about in the principles in the causes that he has connected himself with. And he, he's a man that I spent, obviously, four years with in Cincinnati. And I know the goodness inside Jerry Springer. I've seen it. I've seen the charitable work that he's done. So I, I do believe um, that he, he is a good man. But there have been so many uh, good people who have 
come in, uh, to my life that have really helped me. Do you ever think you'll end up on his show at any point? I for hope anything? not. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be fantastic. I mean, Steve Fiziak is on Springer today, but you, you, you did a lot. I mean, in, in your limited time in Cincinnati, you had the opportunity to work with a nationalist phenomenon now, not obviously then, but also being there for Pete Rose you know, record-breaking hit. And I was watching some of these old videos, and here's Steve Fiziak looking like a you know a five-year-old out there on the field so young, interviewing Pete Rose the day he's going to break this record to get into the record books. You covered world championship teams before. You've been around a lot of big-time events. That had to be, like, just incredible to be there to see that moment happen in baseball. It was and it still is a great memory, and I remember because it interrupted our my, my honeymoon. And, Why are you um, getting married during baseball anyway as a baseball announcer? That is one of the great questions, and I Thank guess you. it was because family members couldn't be there in October after the season. But my wife and I, why did we get married on September 7th? And I had asked Pete Rose when he was going to get the hit, just in a humorous question. Right. When do you get? think you get the hit? It was in May, May of, two, of 1985, and he goes... August 23rd. And I go, August 23rd? How did you come up with that figure? And he goes, well, I'm only playing against right-handers now. Uh-huh. And I figure I'll hit between 260 and 265. He was very good with numbers. You think? As you, right. yeah. as you know. <laughs> so he said, he, with conviction, he said, August 23rd. And I go, okay. So you think September 7th is safe? And he goes, oh, yeah. So I actually have this baseball that's, that says on it, Stacy, will you marry me? On the other side, it says, but not until I get the hit. And the greatest thing about Pete Rose when he signed it, he misspelled until. He spelled it I-N-T-I-L. And I love that about the baseball. <laughs> and so anyway, September 7th comes. He uh, he ties the record on September 8th. I actually have to I do the Cubs-Reds game on a Saturday fly to St. Louis for uh, the rehearsal dinner, then get married on September 7th. He gets the hit on September 8th. Uh, we fly back to Cincinnati. He And they won't let me go on our honeymoon until he gets the hit. On Monday, he goes 0 for 4. On Tuesday, a lefty's pitching, so he doesn't play. And on Wednesday, September 11th, he gets the hit. So he got his hit on before, September 11th? Before 9-11, that's what 9-11 meant to me. Uh-huh. That's the day Pete Rose broke Ty Cobb's hit record. So then we were able to go. But I do remember being in the booth with my wife. Um, and I looked back at her. And, I, and when the celebrations were taking place, and I said, Aren't you glad we stayed? And she said yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a great story we can tell about our wedding, our marriage. And uh, that was the start of a, right now, 34-year friendship, which has been incredible. So did, did you know at the time that he was gambling and doing all this kind of stuff? Yes. Really? I didn't know he was doing it on baseball. But he, remember, we didn't have computers back then. But Pete would call me at the television station, like, every Thursday because college basketball teams played Thursday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. And it's a, hey, Fizz, how's Louisiana Tech and Virginia Commonwealth going? And I go, who cares? And he goes, big money, big money. So I say, well, and I go with the ticker and I go, uh, Virginia Commonwealth's up three with uh, four minutes to go. Ah, rats, uh, you know. So it'd be those kinds of conversations. So I know. So like, like this is in the off season where he's making yeah, these phone exactly. calls to you. Or he would go to Latonia Racetrack and, uh, a friend of mine would tell me he found $5,000 tickets at his feet, you know. But other athletes were betting on horses or, uh, you know, uh, college basketball, mm-hmm. but not on baseball. Yeah. And that's where he got himself into trouble. 
So with Pete Rose getting that hit and you being there and seeing all of that happen in your face, did you ever think, like, would I ever have a moment bigger than this at this stage of my career? You know, like you experienced something so great so young in your career, so early on in your career. Did you ever think you could top that? Yes. You did. And you have too. Do you know when it is? When you watch your children play. Hmm. I remember rushing home from a Arizona State basketball game paying a student to drive me to the airport. This was before 9-11, so you could run, run to your gate. Barely made the flight. My son is eight years old, and he's playing in a you know, uh, 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 machine pitch championship game, and they had a really good team. I get back just in time before the game begins. My son hits three home runs, two doubles, drives in 11 runs. They're leading 23 to 22. The bases are loaded. The opposing left-handers up there. My son is over at first base. This kid rips a screaming line drive. My son lays out, makes this unbelievable catch, and all these eight-year-old kids pile on top of him. And I look over at my wife and I said, I'm so glad I made that flight. That moment is much more important to me than Pete Rose's hit or the time when the Angels were clinching. But I had seen the Angels clinch before. I wasn't doing the game because it was taken by the national broadcast. And I was given permission to go home because my daughter was in was the lead in the school play. So I ran home, and that meant so much to my daughter. So those moments are way greater than uh, the championships. Now, the greatest moment I've seen in sports is the 15 World Championship yeah. to see the Kansas City Royals. The way they won, the the team philosophy, the, the, the love of each other, I mean... How many times do you see a team that finishes last in home runs and last in walks win a world championship? There's only one way they do that. There is a, an esprit de corps that was on that 14-15 team, and it was a joy to just watch it as a broadcaster. But we were so close. You know, you could see it in the clubhouse. You could see it on the airplane, that group of young men, how much they cared for each other. And they knew, I think, collectively, their subconscious and conscious, they knew we couldn't do this alone. We had to do it together. And they did. What was your your favorite like untold story from that run of Royals? Like from like behind the scenes, take us behind the curtain on the plane or in the clubhouse or something like that that you witnessed and and you like ah I love this story and I haven't shared it or anything. I have shared this several times, but I'll share it again because I was the sideline reporter for TBS when they were doing the national game, the Baltimore Orioles, and I was the sideline reporter and I was in right next to our dugout, so I could see that unity in the team. And Jason Vargas was pitching, I think it was the final game of the ALCS, and I can't remember who the hitter was, but he hit this tremendous shot to left field. You remember the play. And Alex Gordon makes this catch and slams into the bullpen fence, face first, and crashes down. And the dugout erupts in joy. And they're all waiting for him. And it was the last out of the inning, and Alex comes in. He's got a big smile on his face. And they just swarm him and I'm, I'm part of the scene and I can watch it and Jason Vargas is just kind of waiting outside he, he's not part of the the, the the mosh pit and finally the guys get off Alex because he's had this spectacular catch and Jason then reaches for him and hugs him and then they separate and Alex walks two steps away turns and looks back at Jason in my direction and he goes I got your back and that's what they did they each had each other's back 
Alex Gordon had Lorenzo Cain's back. Lorenzo Cain had Mike Moustakas's back. Mike Moustakas had Alcides Escobar. Esky had Perez. Perez had Hosmer. The starting rotation had this selflessness that all they cared about was somehow, somehow pitch well enough to hand this unbelievable bullpen a tie game or the lead, and they believed they would win. And I just thought it was a, a great uh, demonstration of unity. But that moment when Alex turned around and said, I got your back, that, that meant the 14 and 15 success. Yeah, and it really was that way. And it, it not only turned around an organization, but we always talk about it the way it turned around Kansas City in general. And, and you've been with the Reds and the, uh, the Angels and, and obviously the Royals now and so many other different things. Have you ever seen a team have an impact and an effect on a city like that Royals team did in 14 and 15? No. Uh, I really haven't. And maybe it's because of all they went through. And I thought that was um, one of the great moments because they suffered for 30 years. Yeah. They didn't win a world championship. They had gone through the dark times. And I do remember asking Jeff Montgomery, I said, when did it go bad and when did it go good? And he said, it went bad when Ewing Kaufman passed. And he said they had this, you know, basically a corporation of 10 that made the decisions and Mm -hmm. he said it really wasn't until David Glass was able to take over and he said when it turned was when he hired Dayton Moore and Dayton Moore had a plan and stayed with it and the Glass family had the conviction and the discipline to stay with that plan even when he was being questioned but he remember I think he said it'll take eight years and he had to start at the bottom he had to uh, develop our minor league system he had to build a new facility in the Dominican Republic but Dayton is a man of tremendous uh, faith and also conviction to believe you're not going to win championships without good people. Yeah, you've got to have good athletes. Sure. They certainly had great athletes, but they had good people. Rex Hudler's an interesting cat. You've been with him for a very long time, like a brother to you, right, would you yes. say? And, and obviously the broadcast with him and Ryan and him and you, I think, are completely different. Ryan's kind of like the father figure to him. You're kind of like the brother figure to Rex Hudler. How did you guys develop the relationship that you have? Because together, the two of you in the booth seem like you're having the time of your lives. Well, remember, our friendship goes back to when he was a player. Mm -hmm. And my first year with the Angels in 1996, and that was Rex's best year. And the team was miserable. But you could always count on Rex. Rex would be the guy to sign the interviews. Rex would be the guy they would ask to do the public appearances. He was always in a good mood, and his mom taught him. She said, be a fountain, not a drain. And this guy is an overflowing fountain. I mean, the fountains on the plaza, they got nothing compared to Rex Hudler. But I've seen him through the great times when he had his best season, hitting over 316 home runs and stole a bunch of bases that year. And I've also seen him go through the difficult times of when his first son was born and they didn't know. And the, 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 the joy that he brought when Cade came into the world because he, is, he and Jennifer are both so honest with what took place when they discovered that their son has Down syndrome and the pain and the anger that he felt. He's very honest about it, but also... The, the beauty that came through that. And I'll always remember the story that he probably told you about Jim Abbott. Because um, he, was, he was frustrated. He was angry. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't return any phone calls for the first three days after he found out that Kate had Down syndrome. And he goes in and he said, uh, 
all of his friends, J.T. Snow and Jimmy Edmonds and Jim Abbott and uh, Chuck Finley and Mark Langston, they're all there. And, hey, Hud, what you, we've been calling you. We want to know. How about, tell us about your new baby. And he, he's honest. Mm -hmm. Kate has Down syndrome. And, you know, you could hear a pin drop on cotton, he said, in that. And they all didn't know what to say. They hugged him, but they, then they went back to work. And he said, I got on the treadmill and I started jogging. And then right next to me, Jim Abbott gets on the treadmill. And as we all know, Jim Abbott, in my opinion, is a, is a true angel. He was born with one hand. He became an All-American in Michigan. Yep. But he's running next to Rex, and he says, he waits for a moment. There's a, there's a, he, he lets Rex run, doesn't say anything. And then he says, you know, when my folks got married, they were only 18 years old. And when they were 19, they had their first baby. And he came out and he had only one hand, but he did just fine. And it was one of those aha moments. And Rex truly took that into his heart and said, we are going to make this experience a tremendous loving experience. And I believe Rex is a, a, a man, he and Jennifer are people of tremendous faith. And they believe that this was a gift and that they could be part of the Down syndrome com community. And they I saw them help out dramatically in Southern California. They're doing the same thing in, in Kansas City as well. They're good people who love their community. They love the Royals. And as I said earlier, Rex is a fountain. And I mean, it is an explosion of enthusiasm uh, many times, but, but he's, a, he's, a, he's a good person and really cares about others. When you're given his eulogy, because you will, what is, the, <laughs> what, what is the one story that you're going to share with everybody about Hudler that everybody needs to know about him? I think that one. Really? Yes, because I do know how they fought. Now, there are legal, uh, there are certain legal things that states must adhere to for the disabled community, but unless you fight for them, they're not going to give them to them. And I saw so many individuals, a single mother with a down child who was from Mexico, didn't speak the language. How does she serve herself? Well, Rex and Jennifer helped those kinds of people because they had to fight for Cade in their school system. And so it's that. It's that moment with Jim Abbott. It's that moment that Rex has, I'm sure, experienced with many families who are who share the same experience, mm -hmm. where their child, they have discovered, either has cerebral palsy or Down syndrome, or, and the suffering and the pain that they're going through at first, when now Kate is 21 years old, and he is uh, a man of incredible joy. Every time I see him, Mr. Fiziok, how are you? And he gives me this huge hug, and he is nothing but unconditional love. And uh, Rex and Jennifer have nurtured that in him, and their children have too. And their children are the huggiest and loviest people, and I think they are that way because of Cade. So announcing father, mentor slash babysitter to Hudler, you got all of that going on. And you're still, like, writing a book, and you became an author, The Walls of Luca. And it's finally out after, what, 27 years of trying to work on this one, right? <laughs> I want to know. I want to know about the book. How, how did you decide? I'm I'm writing a book. I'm I'm done with baseball, and I'm writing a book about wine and and, and the Great War and and Italy. 
Um, I've always been a reader. I told you that earlier. You know, I love I love the classics, whether it was Kenneth Roberts or Wallace Stegner or John Steinbeck, or and now I'm reading Diana Gabaldon series of The Outlander. Um, I just like good writers. Um, Elena Ferrante, who's written the Neapolitan series in Naples, Italy. But Stacy and I were vacationing in Italy in 2006, and we were staying in a bed and breakfast in southern Tuscany, and I had this vivid dream about this great walled city. Usually you just go back to bed. In this case, I got up, wrote down the outline, and then put the uh, notes away and went back to sleep. Next morning, Stacy and I are... Uh, visiting some towns, particularly Anna, Serrano, Sabano, and I say, hey, I had this dream last night, and this is what it was about. She goes, that's really cool. And it was about a winemaker, wine owner in this near this great walled city. Was this after drinking some Chianti you had this dream? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, but um, it, 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 you know, sometimes you just dream. Sometimes the dreams are vivid. This yeah. was vivid. Yeah. So anyway, we go continue our vacation. We go to Florence and Venice and Biarrigio and hike the Cinque Terre. And the last week, we're meeting three other couples in a town called Luca. So we're driving in, and I see the walls, and I go, oh, my gosh, honey, this is the city. This was the city in my dreams. So now I'm interested. Now I buy a book about the history of Luca, Italy. Reading and I'm going. The history of these walls is fascinating, and not to bore you, but there were three walls: the pre-Christian walls, the medieval walls, and the Renaissance walls. Luca, at one time, was the number two banking capital in all of Europe at the end of the silk trade, so they had a ton of money. Well, when you have a ton of money, what do you have? You have a fear or worry that somebody's going to take your money. So the last walls that you can walk on today took 105 years to be built, and they are massive ramparts. You can ride your bike on them. You could drive a truck on them if you wanted to. The, the soldiers could go inside, go from one end of the city to the next. You can store your weapons, your arms in there. You could draw water from the Sergio River and flood the plains to keep attackers at bay. In over 2,000 years of three different walls, the walls have never been militarily tested. No one ever attacked Luca. And I thought in the psychobabble of my mind, do we as human beings do the same things? Do we surround ourselves with these invisible walls to keep others away? And in this case, it was people hurting. A wine owner who's rich, a winemaker who's poor. They live in the same property. They want the same goal, which is to produce a great Sangiovese wine. And they each have their own struggles, much like a baseball team. Each person has its own worries, fears, mm -hmm. doubts, whatever it might be. But how do you push those aside for a short time and come together and play as a team? Well, in this case, the wine owner was emotionally abused by his father, and all he wants to do is produce a wine better than his father. His wife is, represents the ego. She wants power. She wants notoriety. She wants uh, a new dress, she, you know, she, but she represents the ego. And then you have the winemaker on the property. He goes off to war and is killed and leaves a wife and four children. And all Angelina Venera wants to do is somehow keep her job. And then you have a young man who does go off to war, sees much horror, one of the protagonists, Franco Carollo, and he comes back a damaged man. They didn't call it PTSD, but that's what he comes back with. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you get rid of those fears and those worries? Well, I have a woman of spiritual conviction, Isabella, and Isabella Rosselli is a person that nothing can get her compass needle off north, true north, which is her faith. And 
it all takes place during Italy's dark times of World War One, and then the rise of Mussolini and fascism. So you have all of these horrors taking place, whether it's World War One, then even what was even worse than World War One was the influenza of 1919, and we lost 16 million people in World War One. We lost 50 million people worldwide in the influenza, and then of course Mussolini comes out of this. So not only is life going to give you those things but they're going to give you personal things as well. How do you stay with your conviction? And I used to tell our kids, there are three areas of growth, the mental, the physical, the spiritual. And unless you exercise each muscle every day, you're not worth much. And in Isabella's case, the muscle that she exercises the most is the muscle of forgiveness. And that is the essence of the story, how she helps these people let go of their fears, their doubts, to come together to produce a great Sangiovese wine. And you've already got the sequel out. Like, you knew this was going to be a hit, so you already wrote the second one, huh? <laughs> Actually, I mean, if that's not ego-driven, right? <laughs> no, no. Actually, I wrote one book. Uh -huh. But then when I hired a developmental editor, she said, no, this is not one book, it's two books. You have your World War I era, which takes place, this book, from 1914 to 1930, and it ends when Luca dedicates its triumphal arch to Mussolini, and there's a certain thing that takes place in my fictional character story and then book two picks up in 1938 after Benito Mussolini writes his manifesto of race solidifying his union with Adolf Hitler and how it affects the agriculture workers how it affects the vineyard operators and of course because it's also love story you have the wine owner's child falling in love with the winemaker's child and how that friction happens with the dawn of World War II also yeah. ready to take place. So are you done after two books? Or are you going to continue going? Or what no, do you want to do? I actually have, I've just started. I've written 12,000 words in another book, and it is about baseball. Oh, is it? Yeah. What's it about? It's, it's fictional. Yeah. Um, I, can't, I don't want to tell you all about it, but it, it, it's about a young man in the Southern Ute tribe in the state of Colorado, in Southwest Colorado, and he has two gifts. Uh, one of them is... He is an incredible athlete and a great pitcher. And I've always been fascinated about pitching. A young guy, you know, it doesn't matter if it's uh, Jason Hamill today or Roger Clemens, doesn't matter who the pitcher is, he's on the mound and he's alone. And he's in crisis because you have all these thousands of people screaming and he has to be able to execute a pitch at a high velocity, locate it with movement, and block out all of these distractions. Well, my um, protagonist has that ability to focus, much like Greg Maddox, and he has total understanding of his body and his execution. And he also has another gift, but I don't want to tell you that. Um, much tragedy will befall him as he, in his quest to make it to the major leagues. And of course, there will be a scout from our Kansas City Royals yeah. watching him. <laughs> I like it. So so do the, do these images and stories come to you while you're sitting in like Bikram yoga meditating and you're sweating <laughs> I don't, and I you don't do, I don't do Bikram. You don't. No, uh, Hud does. Yeah. No, I do I do traditional yoga. Okay. My, my wife is a health and nutrition consultant and right. yoga instructor, so we got into yoga about 22 years ago and um, I just like the traditional style. I do like the uh, the breath work. Um, and it's really interesting when I talk to coaches, I used to have this conversation with Don Wakamatsu, who was our bench coach for a number of years. And when I, I'd say, what do you, what do you see what's going with our team? 
they're not breathing well. And I said, what do you, when they're successful, I go, what do you, they're breathing well now. And pitching is about breath work. Hitting is about breath work. And it's about calming yourself. And uh, the great ones have that ability to do it. Um, I used to just be amazed at Michael Jordan or um, LeBron James or Steph Curry. Why one person is a really good free throw shooter the last five minutes of a game and one person is not. Or a pitcher. Why isn't the ninth inning so difficult to pitch and the eighth inning not? You're still facing yeah. major league hitters. You'll be facing seven, eight, and nine in the ninth as opposed to three, four, five, four, five, six in the seventh but or eighth. That is the, the psyche and the mentality of sport. And it's the same thing that, that takes place in my book. Do you have that conviction? to drive out those worries, those fears, those doubts, and help people come together. And um, in, in athletics, to watch Joe Montana on the drive, or to watch Steph Curry from three-point range, a tiny little guy, or to watch um, uh, a guy like Wade Davis with the bases loaded get out of a jam. I mean, to, to me, there is a belief, a conviction, uh, a competitiveness that's incredible. So when it's all said and done, what do you want to be known for? To being a good friend, a good husband, a good father. Uh, I think the thing that I've been blessed with, and I told you I'm kind of aware of it, um, I'm, I'm, I'm walking home to God with the, with the woman I want to walk home to God with, and that's Stacy. I mean, she has been an incredible spirit in my life, um, and, we're, and we're best friends. And... Now we're, you know, in our 60s and we're, we're grandparents. And uh, I think we're very aware of the love we have for each other. But I've, o- I've always thought if you put your wife first and she puts you first, how do you fail? You know, it's much like a baseball team. When Alex Gordon put Lorenzo Kane first and Lorenzo Kane puts Alex Gordon first, how do you fail? Um, the same thing was true with... Uh, if Edison Volquez trusts our bullpen, all he thinks about doing somehow grind out five innings and hand Hochaver and uh, Madsen and Herrera and Holland and Davis the baseball. There's a selflessness in sports that's really beautiful. I think too many times we in the media identify or look at the selfishness or the ego when, in fact, there's a selflessness that goes on in team sports that I've always that's always inspired me and, and has been the common denominator in every championship I've, uh, I've been a part of. Are you one of these guys who wants to leave on his own terms or be carried out of the booth? Um, you know what? Uh, I don't even look at life that way because in all of my experiences, when I got let go from the Angels in 2009, I, I remember calling my wife first and then I called my agent. And obviously I was disappointed because I really enjoyed my job. I thought I'd be continuing in this, uh, with this organization for a long time. Mm-hmm. But my wife met the, at the door and she goes, what cool new adventures ahead for us? And then one week later she goes, hey, you've been writing this book for three years. Somebody's going to hire you. And now is the time to finish it. And that's when I did the bulk of the writing, when I was off. So I don't look at life like on my terms or, or another person's terms. Just as an example, I know I have a great marriage. I don't know how long I get Stacy. She doesn't know how long she gets me. But I'm going to celebrate every single moment I have with her. And the same thing is true 
with my job with the Royals. I love every day of going to, to my work. Um, and and I still, to this day, you know, get get excited about the Royals getting men on base and let's say Hunter Dozier's at the plate, can he come through with the big hit? That excites me. I still, to this day, really get excited about a young man's major league debut. I know how it's important, how important it is to that young man. I know how important it is to his mom and dad. And I want to make this history that where they have, let's say, our play-by-play, I want to make it special for them. So I've always looked at life that way. So I don't look at it about my terms or their terms. I'm just going to wake up every day and uh, look at every day as a blessing. What's left on your bucket list? Oh, my gosh. All I mean, you've done it. you've done so much. I mean, like the traveling, the baseball, the football, the basketball, book writing, great marriage, grandkids, kids. I mean, like, well, what, what, else, what else has he got to do, right? You know what? Um, uh, Stacey and I love going places. Um, one of our bucket list items, mine was hiking Half Dome. I've done all three major uh, hikes in Yosemite. That's one of my passions is whitewater rafting and hiking. So we hiked half to them, 17-mile stretch. You go up the side of the mountain on cables. People have fallen off those cables and died. We made it. But on the way down, uh, we're finished with my bucket list. And I said, okay, Stacy, we did mine. What do you want to do? What's your bucket list? And she goes, I want to go skydiving. Oh, no. So we went skydiving. You did where? Yeah, we, and uh, Paris, California, the same place that they filmed the bucket list because uh-huh. they have big old pictures of Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson there. So um, that was a fantastic experience. But we have bucket list items. We want to hike to Machu Picchu and go to Patagonia, New Zealand, um, and also just watch our granddaughters grow up and be good people. And right now it's my opportunity, or Stacy and I, opportunity to be demonstrations for them, demonstrations of love. Because mm-hmm. we know that crisis will come their way, chaos will come their way. Well, how do you handle it? And so that's what we think grand, good grandparents can do, help them through that tough times, just like we were able to help, hopefully help our children through difficult times. And where my mom, particularly my mom, helped me through a difficult times growing up. I hope you enjoyed that look inside Steve Fiziak to realize, man, being a parent is really, really tough. Calling baseball games for your hometown team on the radio is pretty cool, and writing a book happens to be just the icing on the cake. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.